I'm Madeline Jane Oppel, and this is Window Dressing. This week, before I start my second season, I'm doing a one-off episode about clute and heartbreak. I have already done a Jane Fonda episode that covers the 1971 film Clute, but this time I'm going to take a much more personal approach to the film. If you haven't listened to the Jane Fonda episode, I highly recommend it. It includes many details about Jane Fonda's life during this time period, as well as a thorough breakdown of the 1969 film, They Shoot Horses, Don't They? I will do a refresher of Clute's plot and the players involved so that the first Jane Fonda episode isn't required listening, just recommended. Alan Pakula directed Clute. He went on to direct Parallax View and other high-anxiety films that were of the moment in the 1970s. Clute was an experiment in neo-noir realism that was groundbreaking in the way it was shot and for the grittiness of the story. The film feels really modern to me and relevant to my life experience in the time periods, places, and disappointments I have lived through. One of Pakula's goals was to capture the decay and squalor that New York City was experiencing at this time. For those of you who are not aware of New York City's history during the 1970s, here is a brief breakdown. In 1971, New York City was broke, but the sex work trade was booming all over the city, specifically in Times Square. Once thriving communities were now filled with the carcasses of burned buildings, landlords started torching property because it was worth more to them dead than alive, insurance-wise. People were too tightly packed, and the city services like trash and power weren't exactly functioning well. In 1965, there was a huge and devastating blackout. By 1971, Con Edison was actively asking customers to conserve power by having certain dark hours. Now, this sounds normal to us in 2023, but it was really different in 1971, scary even. The economic crisis of 1973 affected the whole country, but it was as if New York was hit first. There was another large blackout in the city in 1974. In the summer of 1977, the infamous 24-hour blackout that acted as cover for the Son of Sam murders happened. Shit was scary. A lot like it is in many cities today. Not enough money, squalid streets, overwhelming homelessness, lack of social services, and a general feeling of doom and danger. For me, Clute has always felt like a San Francisco story. Even though I have lived in New York City, it is so similar in mood to my time in San Francisco that it's hard to separate that feeling from the film. But that's the point. This film is American in its bones. It reflects elements of our culture that do not belong to one time period or place. Clute, as I mentioned, was directed by Alan Pakula and written by Andy and David Lewis. It stars Jane Fonda as Brie Daniels, a New York City call girl slash actress trying to phase out tricks. Donald Sutherland plays the title character John Clute. Clute is a small-town cop turned P.I. investigating a friend's disappearance, Tom Grunerman. Tom, played by Robert Milley, has been connected by police to Bree Daniels through dirty letters that were found in his work desk in Pennsylvania. The head of Tom's company, Peter Cable, played by Charles Coffey, foots the bill for Tom's widow, 
Trina Gruneman, played by Rita Gam, to pay a private investigator to pick up where the police and FBI have left off. They hire Clute. Clute talks to and tails Bree in his attempt to find his friend, but catches a killer instead. The costume designer was Anne Roth. I talk at length about Anne Roth's designs and the contribution they made to this film and culture at large in my first Jane Fonda episode. As a brief recap, Roth's designs lent edge and glamour to Brie Daniels as a character and Jane Fonda's ability to play her. Micro minis paired with over-the-knee leather boots, maxi skirts with knit turtlenecks and antique perfume ball necklaces set the stage for street style seeping into the mainstream. There's also the haircut to contend with. This was an incredibly important moment in hair history and in the evolution of Jane Fonda's identity and look. She went from 1960s sex kitten blonde to 1970s short brown shag. This shift marks an evolution in the culture akin to the 1920s and 1930s. The clothing, hair, and makeup of the 1970s harken back to the 1920s and 1930s because the cultural air was similar. The Great Depression was afoot just as the recession of the 1970s was coming, feminism was fighting its way up to the mainstream, and the country was fighting for social services. All of this is reflected visually in the film, specifically the set deck. Bree's apartment is filled with 1930s decor, now dilapidated earmarks of glamour. The set decorator was John Mortensen. In addition to his work incorporating the feminine glamour of yesteryear, there were also amazing lighting elements that I think came from Mortensen. Specifically, two lamps that glow greenish. The light they emit and the mood it creates is integral to the effectiveness of this film. The first scene I'm going to talk about occurs right after the title sequence. Brie is at a modeling casting call in a brightly lit, clean space. She is lined up with about 20 other girls, sitting in front of three giant, Harper's Bazaar-provided fashion prints of alien-esque bejeweled faces. The images are of the same woman, except each image is filtered differently, a la Warhol. Three makeup execs go down the line, one by one, asking to see the girl's hands, hair, and so on. When they get to Brie, they dismiss her nearly instantaneously, saying to each other that she has weird hands. The girl to her immediate left impresses the committee, and they say she is perfect, has beautiful eyes, coloring, and so on. Unfortunately for this specimen of perfection per the moment, she has a conflict. She is already modeled for a cosmetic line. The girls are dismissed, and a new round of models come in behind them. All black women, even cattle calls, are segregated. Bree's face is pained and humiliated when she is sitting there hearing these three makeup company committee members discuss the beauty of the woman next to her. She doesn't feel good enough, pretty enough, wanted at all, let alone enough. She is literally passed over with no other comment than weird hands. We also see other women suffer humiliation as they witness someone see them and not see beauty or worse, see beauty in the girl next to them that is worthy of comment while theirs is not. My first several experiences of this scene were mostly me interacting with the cattle call element of the beauty industry. 
It's only recently that I have understood this scene through the lens of womanhood, period. The pain of the constant compare and contrast we are made to do through simple existence and how devastating it is to fall short in a society where beauty is power is palpable, especially for women, specifically women on their own. I grew up as a runaway, and throughout my life, I have been heavily reliant on my looks for survival, to a debilitating extent. It actually feels threatening to me to even watch this scene, let alone experience it. Of course, what is true in life is true in relationships. Hearing a lover praise another woman's beauty isn't just threatening, it can be heartbreaking. To lose control of that power source, or simply to have it judged harshly, coldly, and or within earshot, is enough to send any woman over the edge, but especially Brie Daniels, who makes her living off her face and body, both as an actress and as a call girl. It's positively devastating. Brie walks out of this casting and goes straight to a phone, where she makes a call to a friend and asks for a quick 50 via a commuter. She turns that trick to get her power back. After she leaves the John's hotel room, she walks home with a bushel of flowers and a bag of groceries at dusk. I'm sure I mentioned this in my Jane Fonda episode, but it's an important detail. The flowers are marigolds. Marigolds are a protection flower. They are planted in gardens to ward off pests from other precious plants like fruit. They are poisonous to young children and small animals, but can be eaten by adults. They are protective and powerful symbols. I love this detail in the film. Crossing the threshold from the street into her building, and finally into her apartment, is a frightening feat. Bree practically runs up the apartment stairs and through the dark hallway to her door. Once inside, she locks the deadbolt and chains the door. Alone and safe, she settles into her skin and runs a bath. She passes a rack that has a feather boa and a large country hat with two colors of peach ribbon flowing from the brim. These items of differing feminine roles, all held by one coat rack, paint a picture of the parts she is made to play. But because we are in her home, it feels more like actual play, like a child playing dress-up as opposed to a woman being marginalized by her ascribed roles. Brie, post-bath, sits in a cranberry red caftan at her kitchen table. She pulls her legs up and in after lighting two candles on the table and turning off the overhead light. She sits in the silent, darkened space with a glass of white wine and a joint she holds with a roach clip. She begins to sing an Irish hymn. Brie is the most beautiful when she is alone. We as the audience witness this precious gift, an unguarded whole woman. The world she lives in, and I could argue the world all women live in, does not allow for this level of vulnerability and realness outside of the privacy of one's own home, specifically her own kitchen table. 
I think the image of Bree singing a hymn and wearing borderline religious garb in the color of blood while at her kitchen table is the visual equivalent of the divine feminine. It's also the version of Bree that Clute sees, the true her. In the next scene, Bree is in bed listening to the radio and reading a book on sun signs rather voraciously. On her bedside table sits a flashlight, the radio, and a lamp that casts a warm glow. The radio announces that the time is midnight. The newsperson goes on to talk about the Con Edison restrictions on power use due to capacity issues. Bree shuts off her light and the radio and gets situated in bed to sleep in a very practiced routine that is comforting to watch for me because I find myself reflected in her. But it's likely emphasized in the film to show the trap the culture has built for her, the one she finds herself seeking refuge in, leading to more emptiness in her life. Her solitude is pierced by the telephone ringing, which is sitting on the floor just to the right of the bed. She reaches down and answers the call. There is no one on the other end. Bree sits up in bed, visibly shaken by the terror of knowing she is not safe and there is no refuge. That truth runs through her days and nights. There are moments when we see her safe, but it's an illusion she built at her kitchen table or at her vanity mirror. The magic only holds if she is alone, because that's the only time she is free. The next morning, Bree gets ready for another meeting, this time as an actress. She makes a protein shake in her blender, feeds the cat, and prepares to put on false lashes. She stands, leaning in slightly, in front of her Art Deco-era, round, mirrored vanity. The wood portion has been painted over white, as opposed to refinishing the original wood. It makes her partially painted white brass bread frame behind her pop. She is wearing an outfit that mirrors both finishes of her 1930s decor a muddied gold tight-knit t-shirt, and a white cotton button-down maxi skirt. The door buzzes. Bree stands frozen at her vanity, false lashes between her fingertips, scared. Her solitude, once again, is interrupted by an intrusive fear. She walks over closer to the door and watches it apprehensively until the buzzing stops. She looks through the peephole, seeing a fuzzy image of a man's jawline. Bree asks, who is it? Clute answers, Miss Daniels, my name is John Clute. I would like to talk to you. Bree replies, what do you want? The conversation ends with Bree chaining the door shut from the inside. She realizes quickly that Clute had no legal jurisdiction, aka power over her, and she did not have to talk to him, so she doesn't. This marks Bree and Clute's official first meeting. Another intrusive man looking to harm her, fuck her, or at best, offer her nothing. She leaves her house weary of his presence lurking, but goes on with her day, as many of us are made to do countless days and nights. Later that night, Brie comes home from a particularly glamorously outfitted but tame call with an older John who works in a garment factory. She gets out of her cab in the dark wearing a midnight blue, floor-length, long-sleeved sequined gown that hugs her body like skin. She is wearing a burgundy marabou feather boa and her signature tan trench coat with leather piping and a popped collar to complete, or rather disguise, the ensemble. She walks up to her building steps when she spots Clute 
in the basement unit with the door open. Bree can see evidence of the surveillance he has been running on her and her mugshot from last year's arrest in his room. He says, Will you talk to me now, Miss Daniels? Her response goes like this. You bastard. Is this the shakedown, hun? Because you picked a loser, I don't have it. I'm looking for Tom... Jesus, you think I'd be living in this kip if I were taking calls full-time? I'd be back on Park Avenue. Can I ask you some questions? Or you'll get me thrown back in the brig, you mean? Bree agrees to let Clute come up to her place to answer his questions. At this point, she thinks he is blackmailing her. She attempts to seduce him, but ends up comparing herself to a brand new dishwasher as a joke and is left with very little power, but no meaningful threat within the dynamic. Then they both hear a noise. This is important to have happened whilst in each other's company inside the relative safety of her own home because it implies that the danger is real, ever-present, and not coming from Clute. But most importantly, Clute witnesses it and addresses it. In a sexually charged moment, he sits Bree down on the bed and asks for her keys. Confused but clearly turned on, Bree lets Clute guide her body and her head. He holds her head down near his crotch. She is sitting and he is standing. Clute says, There is someone on the roof. Palpable fear runs through Bree's body. He had directed her body to keep her out of harm's way. That was the part that was the turn on, the caretaking, even if Bree hadn't known it yet. Later that night, Bree lay in bed alone, feeling scared and powerless. She gets up and puts her trench coat on over her matching pajama set and walks downstairs to Clute's basement apartment. She knocks on the door and asks if she can stay. Clute lets her in and offers to go upstairs with her, but she says no. Bree says, I just don't want to be alone right now. The significance of that statement from Bree is massive. She is only safe alone, only free alone. Wanting to be with this man in the creepy basement is a much more significant desire than she was likely prepared for. He goes to sleep on the pull-out mattress and she falls asleep fully clothed on the bed. She wakes at some point and crawls down into Clute's bed. Now half-nude and softly enveloping herself in him, he wakes, embraces her, enters her, and loves her. It is one of the hottest near-silent sex scenes I have ever seen. Afterward, Brie lays on her back, smug and satisfied, while Clute looks down at her with warmth and love. She says, What's the matter? Are you unhappy because you didn't make me come? I never come with a John. She gets up and leaves his apartment. Brie did this, or at least said this, because she was made to feel powerless, and just like the cattle call where she felt flawed and passed over, she got her power back by turning a trick putting him in his place, and proving that he is just like the rest. She regained control over herself and her circumstances through this action. Unfortunately for Bree's sense of agency and Clute's sense of decorum, this wasn't like any other John, fuck or trick. She did come, and the love blossoming between them was real. The next day, the pair chased down people who might have answers about Tom's disappearance and Bree's stalker. 
They talked to former friends, junkies, madams, and her old pimp boyfriend, Frankie Lagoran, played by Roy Scheider. Eventually, after finding a girl whom she worked with closely, Arlen Page, played by Dorothy Tristan, strung out and destitute, Brie flees. She gets out of Clute's car, runs up the stairs to the subway, and disappears into a haze of heroin and nightclubs. She ends up in the arms of her former pimp, Frankie, in a dimly lit disco where Clute just happened to have located her. Tears form in Clute's eyes as he watches Brie cuddle up to Frankie like a lamb being led to the slaughter. Brie sees it too and rubs it in harder, curling up into Frankie less like a lamb and more like a gleeful child on Santa's lap. After what I assume is several days later, Brie is going through brutal heroin withdrawal. I say I assume it is several days later because it looks as if it could be the following day. But as we know, that would not make sense given the duration of time it takes to become physically dependent on heroin and what the withdrawal looks like is based on the depth of that physical dependency. Brie is in her bed dressed in her cranberry red caftan, surrounded by a mess, including kitty litter on the floor and clothes scattered about. Clute knocks on the door. She gets up and lets him in. She nearly faints. He uses his hands to guide her body down to sit on the valet to the left of her door. He holds her head and pushes it down between her knees to ease the dizziness. Neither speaks. When she raises her head, he walks her back to the bed and tucks her in. While she is tossing, turning, and going through hell that is heroin withdrawal, he holds her, strokes her hair, cleans her house, and watches over her. In my mind, this is the most romantic scene in the film. Their lovemaking was hot, but this caretaking scene, which is unquestioning, without judgment, and bursting with a kind of love that I personally have never experienced, takes my breath away. Take it from me, going through heroin withdrawal alone changes you forever. What Clute does for Brie by showing up and watching over her during her darkest hour saves a piece of her soul, one that you don't get back if you're forced to go it alone. The film splices in shots of Brie at her therapist's office, discussing herself and her feelings. Right after the heroin withdrawal scene, Brie tells her therapist that I don't really give a damn what I would really like to do is be faceless and bodiless and be left alone. This is one of my favorite lines. I find it deeply relatable. Bree's mistreatment and the fact that her power source and confidence is, as dictated by the societal structure, her body and face, it makes sense that she wants to disappear. It also makes sense that sex work makes her feel wanted and in control, which is the gist of another therapist session early on in the film. I often want to change my name, dye my hair red, and disappear. In fact, I have lived a lot of my life starting over, in part because of the freedom that anonymity gives you. The ability to begin anew is deeply linked to this country's ideals, making the desire almost religious in tone. She goes on to tell her therapist that this man she met, Clute, 
took care of her during her withdrawal. Her therapist asks her if she feels threatened by it. Bree says, When you're used to being lonely and someone comes in and moves that around, it's sort of scary, I guess. Her therapist asks her, How do you feel when you feel scared? Bree says, Angry. Her therapist says, At who? At him? Bree says, A lot of the time, yes. In her next therapy session, Bree says about her relationship with Clute. I just wish that I could let things happen and uh, enjoy it, you know, for what it is and while it lasts and, and, uh, and relax about it. But all the time, all the time, I keep feeling the need to destroy it, to, to, to break it off, to go back to the, to the, the comfort of being numb again. Bree and Clute are shopping for groceries at a street market in the evening. She is wearing a tight-knit striped t-shirt with a brown suede button-up maxi skirt, a matching fringe purse, and a pair of oversized tortoiseshell sunglasses atop her head. She stands slightly behind Clute, watching him. At one point, she palms a piece of fruit and sticks it in her purse. Clute, of course, catches this and calls her out. This only matters because it gets at the larger feeling of the scene. You can see Brie wanting this man, and in the act of wanting him, wanting to be different herself, freer than she thought she could be or imagined was even safe to be. The theft is just an example of her fighting for control in a situation where she has none. Love is the absence of control. It also gets at the fundamental divide between Brie and Clute. She hasn't been allowed the same freedom he has just because of the realities of gender and geography. There is obviously a desire to be different on her part, different enough to be able to trust him. But the reality is she is the way she is because her position in the world stripped her of the power Clute enjoys. Not because she wants power and he doesn't, or because he can love and she can't. As much as the film is reflective of the decay that New York City was experiencing at this time, it's also about the fundamental inequities between the sexes and the classes. I think this is one of the main reasons why I find Clute endlessly fascinating and deeply comforting. I think it reflects my worldview and my experiences in an undeniably accurate way. Bree's anger alone is satisfying to watch because it reflects the cage she is in, the one that makes her want to be faceless and bodiless and be left alone. After Bree's apartment was broken into by the killer, she freaks out and decides to go back to her old pimp boyfriend, Frankie. The need for protection and the fear that Clute can't provide it because he fundamentally doesn't understand her world motivates this choice. Bree is collecting her things in the trash department while Frankie sits on the most ornate chair in the place watching her. Bree is wearing a navy blue knit mini dress with a low slung belt and over the knee leather boots that I would die for. She wears her tan trench with leather piping over the look, collar popped and belt open. Clute walks in and goes past Frankie and straight to Bree. He says, I don't want you to do this. Bree looks at him and in her best telephone call girl voice says, 
I'm just going to a girlfriend's apartment. I can't stay here, obviously. The falsity in her tone is brutal. She continues to gather her things. Clute says, please, not with him. Bree doesn't respond, but Frankie does. He says, so the girl's got a big apartment, lots of room. It's not necessarily how it looks. Of course, it's exactly how it looks, and Frankie's condescending bullshit adds insult to injury. Frankie goes on to talk about respect, in the way a man who hates women might. This proves too much for Clute, and he lunges at Frankie. During the fight, Bree grabs a pair of scissors and stabs Clute in the arm, ripping his clothes. It is unclear if he is seriously injured or not. The second after she does this, Bree freezes, realizing she literally hurt the thing she loves. Clute doesn't make a noise. He just stares at her, sad-eyed, before turning and leaving. Bree leaves her apartment and heads to her therapist's office, where she finds that the doctor is not in. Out of desperation, Bree goes to see the John who never touches her. I mentioned him earlier, at the garment-cutting warehouse. She arrives at the deserted place of business to find herself trapped with the killer, Peter Cable. Cable forces her to listen to the death tape of her old friend during which Bree silently sobs. Clute arrives and rescues her. Cable goes out the window in a vertigo-esque sequence that ends the mystery, but not the movie. In the end, Bree and Clute part ways. She leaves New York to start again, as is her birthright. Clute returns to his small-town life without her. They don't get to be together, in large part because of the inequities that shaped them to begin with. This ending is the most realistic possible. She cannot be saved because she isn't broken. The world is. He can't bend to her because he doesn't have to. His position and sex prevent his understanding in a way that would actually alter them both if he could access it. Thank you for listening. I'm Madeline Jane Abel, and this was a one-off episode to tide you over until the next season of Window Dressing premieres next month. American Trash and National Treasures. Please like and subscribe to this podcast on Apple or Spotify. And check out Window Dressing's Instagram page at Window Dressing Podcasts for more content and updates on the coming season.